I body shamed Rajiv. I was sexist towards Bonnie. <laughs> I was belittling of Alan. And now everyone's like all nice and supportive. Hello, everyone, and welcome. We are Irenicast. I'm Jeff. It's your boy, Alan. This is Bonnie. This is Rajiv. On the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. Thank you for joining us for another conversation to provoke your progressive Christian imagination. This week, Casey is on assignment. And we are going to talk feminism, specifically feminist interpretations of scripture, which we're going to uh, turn over in a moment to Rajiv and Bonnie as they guide us through this amazing conversation. And then we're going to close with a brand new segment called I Would But. This should be a fun one. Uh, so without any further ado, let's just get into this conversation. Rajiv, Bonnie, I keep I feel like I say this a lot, but guide us, mold us, yeah. shape us, <laughs> move us forward as people. <laughs> Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so um I'm I'm gonna open up here. Bonnie's got a lot to contribute in, in a minute, but I, I wanted to to open because as a male in the Christ a heterosexual cisgender male in in the Christian space, uh there's there's just a lot of weirdness from some circles around calling myself a feminist and approaching theology in the Bible as a feminist and have gotten pushback. Um, and a lot of people that have said, thank you, we're, we're in this together. And I guess how I would answer why it's important for me individually and why I believe it's important for other men uh, in any circle to be feminists, be feminist allies is rooted in in some real sadness in that without male support and male cooperation we're not going to move forward you know we're we're on the verge of celebrating 100 years of women getting the vote in the United States and the truth is without men voting to make that happen it wouldn't have happened that's a horrible dynamic but it was a real dynamic and currently in our state of things without men stepping up without risking a loss of status, power, and place in order to include everybody gender-wise, we don't move forward. We can say all we want, but until we actually step into it, things don't change. Like, What, what are your thoughts on, on that take? I anticipate, I guess, a lot of pushback on that because I think framing any time like, hey, your liberation depends on the people who are complicit in your oppression – feels weird to me. I think on some sense it's true because we're all so interrelated families and cultures, tribes, systems. But I know too often, like I've still centered my, my experience as a man, even in the midst of like <laughs> liberation theology and conversations. So I think it's true what you're saying on some level. And I also think at the same time, there's a danger of still continuing to center the like benefactor kind of thing. That's a good clarification. And I guess it's just messy. I don't know. Like, it's, it, it's horrible. It, it's like absolutely the worst, the worst thing. I mean, I, uh, Paulo Freire comes to mind in the pedagogy of the oppressed. And part of what he talks about is, you know, the oppressed not only free themselves, but free their oppressors. You know, there's, there's some synergy in movements towards liberation. And I, I would be cautious to say it's, it's not about centering male power. 
it's more about a recognition of what male power is because it is real and it is ugly and it needs to change, but it has to change itself in order to make space. But uh, what I meant by messy, just to kind of clarify is like, I think there's always a desire for me to have really clear cut answers and clear cut ways of doing things. And that's still a denial of the bodied experiences of people who are involved because like the complex and to be, to be present is to like risk things and to like, I think my desire for clear cut stuff is still a function of control. So that's what I meant by messy. I'm learning a lot about myself. <laughs> no, I really appreciate that. Cause that, that rings true for me too. Yeah. I think it's also important to remember the posture in which we do that. I think it's easy it's easy to step into the as the father of two daughters mode. And what I mean by that is because I have relationship with these particular women, I now have a universal understanding of all women. So let me explain to you. So it's it's even in our allyship, it's it's using our power to change people with other power, but then letting go that power with of that power when we're interacting with others who and then like giving that over. So I think it's like a like a like a transference kind of thing is being an ally is listening and not imposing and and knowing where to direct our, our power inside whatever. Um I I hope that comes off clear. I'd use the word transformational instead of transferring. Like I seek to be transformed by people who have different experiences than me. Like in the process I want to be caught up in all of it, you know? And I want to be changed in the midst of it and not just seen as a, an actor who has something to give or right, right, right. Go necessarily all those, those things are true. Yeah. Alan's yeah. my official translator. So what he said, <laughs> yeah. well, and, but you know what you said, Jeff was, was kind of interesting. You talked about, well, as a father of two girls, that sort of thing. One of the things that I do every now and then to kind of flip that, which changes it. I was like, well, I'll sometimes we'll say, well, you know, I have a white friend. And, and the I like response, because like nobody ever hears that. Nobody ever says that. So the response is just like, what just happened? And, uh, well, and, yes. that, and that highlights the importance of context, right? Like exactly. that to someone who, who, who views the world as this even playing field would say, well, that's just as racist as me saying blah, 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 which is, you know, bullshit. <laughs> and it's a, this candy coating view of the world where everyone's on a level playing field. So should we, we should all act the same way to one another in that regard. I love that. Um, I hope I, I only hope that I'm the person you're picturing when you say that, uh, I have this white friend. <laughs> it depends on the argument. <laughs> okay. Touché. At this, at this moment, I guess I'm, I'm even feeling right now. Um, I get what I'm experiencing is like, I think it's a good place to start the, the conversation, but it's also ironic. <laughs> I don't know. All three of us have weighed in and like, Bonnie's a part of our conversation and I don't know, starting, we're still reflecting from, I know cause Raji, this is something very important to you and you're beginning with your own experience, which is like any, all of any of us can do, but I'm actually excited in this conversation to just learn from all of you. <laughs> I mean, I've had some encounters with feminist texts, but to hear about how, how you all have processed this stuff, I think is worth a lot for me and for people who are listening. So I'm excited yeah. to just be a part of the conversation. Well, I think when Bonnie and I talked a bit about it, we decided to do it this way first, to have the male voices up front in order to actually bring that into the space. Because 
avoiding the discomfort, avoiding the awkwardness. Again, it just leads to politeness and surface encounters, and then we don't get anywhere. Going to the the next phases of the conversation. Is it okay if I say something? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. I I just want to acknowledge, yeah, this is messy. And I think none of us can claim to have it all figured out, like the way forward. And I think just starting with that is, is helpful, not just in terms of being able to operate with grace towards each other, but also to to know that really what we're doing here, we hope that our children and our grandchildren and their children beyond that will carry forward. And if if we don't begin to have these conversations in really messy ways, then uh, the oppressed the, the hierarchy of oppression just gets perpetuated. It it dies so hard that we have to be willing to risk a lot of our own like little pieces of us dying along the way that need to die. I hope that kind of makes sense. Um, so I just want to say what we're doing is like brave and courageous and thank you. And this was Rajiv's idea to have a feminist, a conversation about feminist readings of the Bible. And thank you, you know, to all of you. To echo the brave comment, feminist uh, readings and work gets and I know, like you all know this, but people who are listening may not be keyed into the the like goings on of feminist thought. It still gets so much pushback, and there's actual danger involved for the people who are whose bodies and perspectives like put them on the line um, continuously. And I think that that brave comment is spot on and not Absolutely. said actually yeah. enough. And it's there's pushback on both sides. That's what seems kind of silly because there's the conservative pushback for sure that, um, you know, really that religious space is male space. And then there's pushback on the other sides with this idea that somehow we're beyond it. Like equality has been achieved. Women have been in this conversation for a really long time. Can we just keep moving? So it's interesting to be in the middle of all of that right now at this particular juncture of time. Totally. You know, there, there, with the gift of the gift and curse of social media, some feminist religious scholars and um, activists, they're under like watch, you know, they, they have death threats, credible death threats put out against them. And as uh, I've never heard of a male feminist activist getting a death threat put out against him. Um, so that, to me, really highlights uh, the fact that we are not we, – we have thoughts that are beyond where we are, but we don't have yet a life that is beyond where we are now. And, and conversations like this hopefully will get us there sometime. And we're, we're going to go over a little later in the episode various approaches to reading the Bible as a feminist that covers a span uh, offered to us by different scholars. So there's – Sometimes conflicting viewpoints, sometimes complementary viewpoints, but we're going to go through that in a minute. But the first sort of official question I have for us is, what does it mean to read the Bible as a feminist? I think um, all feminist approaches to any text sort of begins with this understanding that no text is value-free. 
it's all biased. It's all, it all has gender bias of some kind or another. So you approach any text with that basic assumption. The cool thing about that for me personally is that feminism taught me how to read. <laughs> I mean, like I was in a college context where they actively worked against things like feminine criticism, like feminist criticism or other types of biblical criticism. But it really was like feminist literature that taught me to read from a different angle when I read a text to, to pay attention to power dynamics, to pay attention to how people are presented and what the universe is presented as inside of a text. And then that like led toward class consciousness and like all these other things in my life that I treasure really dear to my heart began with the, the people who taught me how to read like just any text or any film or advertisements or anything as paying attention to that. And for me, the, I mean, everyone defines the core of feminism, I think a little bit differently, but correct me if I'm wrong. Like feminist critique is the paying attention to the ways that equality or disequality is reinforced or undermined um, inside of the content between the sexes and between um, in, in every area, political, economic, psychological, all of those things. Yeah, I, I I was nodding in in agreement the whole time, Alan. That, that was great. I I think I could just say, yeah, I find a similar relationship with feminist readings. It's it's blown open the doors, and there's there's no going back. I, I actually I, I want to add a personal anecdote. Like there was a moment in my education at Bible school. I was at Bible college, and you paid a lot of money to go there. And basically, we had uh, a professor of Christian history talking about historical texts and approaches to scripture or to, you know, biblical texts throughout history. And he reflected on the, the present current state of Christian thought and said, because there are things like feminist readings, because there are things like womanist readings or, you know, uh, other social locations interpreting things, we're in such a bad place like academically, theologically. And I sat back and like kind of for the first moment in my, in my life, it all crystallized. I was like, this old white man who has been teaching this his whole life feels like he's standing on like a hermeneutical mountain above everybody else. And at that moment I saw myself and I was like, Oh my God, <laughs> like there's, there was a clarifying moment that was like, we cannot assume that our social location is normative. And it's, it's yes. silly even talking yes. about, the Bible and us being somehow <laughs> like that my social location as an American is even similar to the people who are writing the text in the Bible and that it applies directly or whatever. But I think a lot of postmodern thought and, and different things have ties into this movement for justice. And it's really a movement for perspective. Um, at least in, in my own life, it's been a movement toward perspective. Yeah. I think that, um, what you said, Alan, is exactly right, that a feminist reading of the Bible sort of looks at texts, especially the Bible, and um, calls out that that idea that there's this mountain of, of hermeneutics that support heteronormativity, that support um, gender binary, the gender binary as being just like what is, like almost ontological, like just, you know. And a feminist reading sees that and names it and calls it out. <laughs> and then you get why the pushback happens. <laughs> I mean, you're threatening like what people exactly. build their whole lives on, <laughs> their whole universe on. 
Well, and you know, that very thing about the threat, it, I, I, I go back, flashback to the interview we did with Penny Nixon and Brian McLaren and, and Brian expresses gratitude for failure of, you know, the decline of church as we know it in America, because we can, it, it would, if success would have meant continuing to prop up white male supremacy, heterosexual white male supremacy in the United States. So in a, in a way, it's like, that's a really powerful statement. Uh, and it's true because without failure of oppressive institutions, nothing else can get born in its, in its fullness. And, and it's key. It's key for me, for people in this conversation, whose families are still very much probably intact in that, in that kind of culture, or they're just getting introduced to, to feminist critique for the first time. It's key to remember that like, the people on the other side of this who don't uh, see value or worth inside of feminist critique, they think there is like no interpretation. They have no interpretive location. Facts are just facts. I just read the Bible and I apply it. And so there's this like whole shift that has to happen perceptually. And that's like the shift of, I don't know how, like you said, ontological, like a shift of understanding reality itself and how like, uh, perception and truth and all of that works. Like when you hear, when I hear capital T truth, I hear like a denial of all the different like truth processes. God, I'm going to end up a process theologian, Bonnie, yeah. because of you. <laughs> but, <laughs> it's, it's happening. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's, it's the assumption that there is no work. And like, I think people, mm. people mm -hmm. who are people who have taught me in this realm showed me that there is work. And it's always on them. <laughs> like it's always on them to work in the system to fit the system that oppresses them. And so if you're someone who can just read it and be like, yeah, there is no work in understanding my part in this. It's probably because you've never had to do that work. I think internally people who have already know on some level and already see and can tap into that. And for some of us, it's a lot harder to, to connect with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what, one of the, the parts of feminist, approaches, there are some assumptions that feminist frameworks make. And Bonnie, I was wondering if you could lead us through those those assumptions. Well, I think we fleshed out some of them already yeah. that, you yeah. know, there's that gender, there's no text that is value-free, that there's a gender bias in all texts. Another one is that, um, you know, like heteronormativity, gender binary, those are just assumed in the text as being basic and fundamental. Patriarchy is always examined when you do a feminist reading, wherever it exists. And we remember that even the stories of women in the Bible are told by men and they're written for male audiences. So that is an assumption that comes to the reading. And feminist readings are not solely theoretical. They have a political component to them as well. Like the point is to read for the betterment of women's lives. In, in that way, I guess it sort of could be called a liberation reading or a form of liberation hermeneutic. Like those are the basic assumptions. Does anybody have any others? I'm surprised how disconnected I am from that last point. Like <laughs> it's all been so theoretical for me, you know? And then hearing that like, yeah, the purpose of this is actually to better women's lives, to get more equality in the world. 
I'm like, oh my God, that's right. <laughs> it's not just a, not just a head exercise, you know? And I'm surprised, I'm surprised that surprised me. Lives are impacted very negatively by the way things are. And, and moving forward, hopefully it alleviates some of the neg- negativity and maybe ends up with legitimate opportunities for flourishing. I, I was way too old when I first learned, yeah, a man probably wrote this woman's dialogue. <laughs> like it was uh, the book of, of judges, I think. And there's a passage where there's a foreign uh, king who is going to war against the Israelite tribes. And his wife, the queen, is like, two women for every man, you know, do this and this and, and violence on all people. And it's like, yeah, some dude penned all of the stuff that she just said. Like, <laughs> you can almost see it. And then I was like, that's so simple, but something I never would have thought about without these teachers. Even that. That's an entry point for anyone listening to this conversation. When you hear a woman speaking, actually think about who wrote it and for what audience. And right. you know, surprisingly, yeah. I've heard feminists tell, like, like interpreting the Bible, they've identified some places in the Bible. They're like, I think this speaks to women. I think this is, this is, uh, and, and maybe we'll get more to that in the conversation later. It's very few and very far between, but, um, Schusler Fiorenza, uh, who I think Mona or Mel- Melody, we didn't call her Melody now. Um, she worked with her at one point, but she talked about like, what would it be like to read, you know, Mary and Martha as actually directed toward women or, you know, there's other places that, that speak that way. And I, even just paying attention to that stuff, you're already beginning to do the work. Right. Exactly. So the, there are some fairly concrete approaches that have been given to us by scholars over the, over the years. And um, Bonnie, you and I discussed a few. Could you give us a rundown? <laughs> um, yeah. These are, this is from a couple of classes that I took when I was in seminary. And um, I found it helpful to think about what are various approaches, because not every feminist thinks the same way. And these are just a few options out of, you know, many, many, many. And it's kind of on a spectrum. Um, There's this rejectionist view. You might have heard of Mary Daly. She wrote the book Beyond Father God. And she is a great example of the view that the whole thing from top to bottom is just corrupt. And you cannot... As as hard as you try, you you will not be able to redeem the text and extricate the patriarchy. So we need to look beyond. How do we look beyond Christianity? How do we look beyond anything related to that text? An, another view on the other end of the spectrum is a loyalist view, which is still feminist, but... Um, it, it's it's a text where it's like, it's the word of God, and we have to deal with it. It can't be dismissed. And the problem is not with the text itself as much as it is with the interpretation of the text. Susan Foe, she wrote a book called Women and the Word of God, A Response to Biblical Feminism. And in that book, she presents this loyalist view that patriarchy is really more or less reduced to the household system and was never intended to go into the public sphere. And you can have separate 
but equal roles in society where it's not like, you know, one is preferenced over the other. And she, you know, she makes an argument for all of that. And that's a more loyalist view. So you've got on one end, the rejectionist on the other end, the loyalist. And then in the middle are is more of the revisionist perspective, which is that, yeah, the Bible is fun, foundationally patriarchal. But so what? We can reconstruct the history of women in the text. We can like look for ways that women operate and we can pull out the positive aspects and we can read women in a way that doesn't address the, that doesn't have to really address the patriarchy. Phyllis Tribble, she wrote texts of terror and she does that kind of work in that text. So those are kind of the three, you know, if we're going to think of it in terms of spectrum that I know about, you guys may know about others. Well, one, one that's, um, really fascinating to me and, and alluring in a lot of ways is sublimationist where female is it, it, it the, the, the feminine is other, which kind of reinforces binary, but God, Christ, Sophia, the Holy spirit, it's all feminine. Maleness has nothing to do with that, that aspect. Hmm. I feel like maybe I'd land on that spectrum depending upon the text. So for me, it's always been the approach and the approaches that really have resonated with me in my own, you know, interpretation or whatever have been literary criticism, literary criticism and form criticism and looking at a given text and being like, Oh, here's what they're doing story, especially with the Hebrew scriptures, which I think is a superior piece of literature than the new Testament with a bunch of spouting offs of Paul. But that's just my opinion. Um, so I think it, to me, those things inform. So if like, I like read the story of, um, you know, you mentioned the book of texts of terror. Some of those texts I'll land on. This is trash. The patriarchy, it's over. Like this, this, we, there's nothing that we can redeem from this story. Uh, but then other stories, I'll be like, oh, wow. If we look at it this way, based off the literature and what's, what it might be trying to accomplish or what it's allowing us to interpret as, as a listener or hearer, then, I could land on another side of that spectrum. I, I I guess I haven't really given a lot of hard thought into what, where, or how I land on that kind of spectrum. But what, what I think about is like empowering readers to use text differently. I, I guess I always, there was always an assumption that you can only use texts, ancient texts in the Bible in very specific ways. Like, the book of like, I keep going back to the book of judges, but like even thinking about all the different ways that it was actually meant to be used or read or consumed and, and applied, uh, empowering the reader to actually do things with the text that might be different than other readers is part of, um, where I, I guess I would land like reading a text of terror, I think has, there's, there's uh, actually a lot of value there. To, to think about historical people and their understanding of themselves and their interaction with God puts me into like a dialogue with people who are different than me. And I think elevating other texts too that, that, and yeah, not, I, not interacting with the whole Bible as if it was one level playing field, I think is an important thing. Um, but yeah, I, I guess I, I, maybe I even fall all the way on the rejectionist and in, in some part of my heart, like, 
if there are not women contributing to this literature, how holy and complete is it? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and, and I, I don't know. There, there's just a lot of questions for me around there. Yes. And yet how influential is it on every aspect of our lives? Yeah. It's like, even, even though there are absolutely parts of me that is like very much in line with Mary Daly and where she's coming from, but the, the thought of sort of, you know, doing a pilot and washing my hands and walking away. I mean, we see where that leads to. It's like, you gotta, this, this tool is used in such violent and vile ways. It has to be contended with. It has to, those, those, um, modes of subjugation have to be countered in some way. And oftentimes the best way to do that is using the tool itself. And, and, and just, the thing I find the most fascinating is the, 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 the body of like the canon that got put together with all the tensions in it gives the readers the tools to, to critique that stuff in my mind. Like it, it, it builds this kind of critical thinking apparatus that allows you to read back things and disagree with them. And maybe that was the purpose all along. Um, I think Jeff was the one who said it. I can't really remember, but you're supposed to uh, like midrash argue, see the tension, lead you toward wisdom. And maybe it's about recovering the idea of uh, reading for that purpose, wisdom, bettering people's lives, like things like that, and then pay, just paying attention to how it all works in the midst of it. And but in in those arguments and debates, women were excluded. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So the construct is great, but um, who was included in in the community was a problem. I spent a lo- uh, quite a bit of time in that rejectionist camp for sure, because it, it is. I, there's no way to deny the fact, I think, that it is corrupt from top to bottom. But the question is, okay, so so then what? I am a minister. I preach from that text every single week. Sometimes I preach like what you were saying, Jeff, I preach against it and say, this is in the Bible, but it's, it's uh, completely... It's like what we don't do. It's what we want to stay away from. And other times I'm trying to find, I'm trying to draw out stories of women and understand more about what it is that they may have been experiencing or thinking and trying to separate them from the storytelling of men and the, uh, the way it's been interpreted by men over the centuries, over the millennia. Um, but it's hard and very messy. There there are a lot of moments of subversion too, though. Like you see women subverting the very systems that they're in and that being praised as a faithful thing. And I think all of that gets lost from the male interp- – like just male-centric interpretation for the history of, of the church. And so I, I'm I'm loving the fact that there are so many teachers who are helping us retrain our eyes to see all the stuff that's been there all along that have been tools of liberation for – women and that leading into liberation for all of us. So I think of like, you know, I don't even know Ruth getting what, uh, so we always talk about like waiting for your Boaz, I think is like a legit group that people like create. And the funny thing is she didn't do that. She like took matters into her own hand and like, like secured her future. And there are these like, uh, 
these subtle subversion, not even subtle, there's a real subversion, subversive elements in the Bible of subverting the patriarchy and Christianity itself starting out. Like even the claim uh, there, you know, in Christ, there is no male or female slave or free Greek, like Greek or Jew, at least gets toward an or- egalitarian future. You know, there, it's like the beginnings of stuff that go on to, 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 to build and blossom that are beautiful to me. So I don't think I would toss it all out. Well, that's, that's the wrestling match, right? <clears throat> that mm-hmm. constant tension. So the Casey's not with us today, but he sent in some, some contribution and we've, we've all had kind of nearly lifetimes worth of a relationship with the Bible, with the, the Western Christian Bible. So we all have familiarity with stories, spark points, et cetera, on how feminist readings, feminist frameworks have come into our lives and into our relationship with the scripture. And I just wanted to hear from all of us, and I'll, I'll go ahead and start with offering Casey's idea because <laughs> he's not here <laughs> he's not here so we'll set him up um he, he's just he's not feeling good today so um hopefully he recovers soon but hear from all of us on on a concrete example a story a theme in the bible that we've connected or had a spark when it comes to feminist approaches so casey's was using the work of renita weems and her study of Sarah and Hagar. And one of the, you know, so powerful that you can extrapolate into just about in any time and place where the evil of patriarchy is so great. And I would say, call it toxic masculinity and male supremacy is the grand evil is so great that even female to female friendships are undermined, threatened, and hurt by the evil of patriarchy. The Sarah and Hagar story, in, in, from his study and perspective, is one that really highlights that. And then he also connected in more recent times talking about women's suffrage, how white women suffragists wanted to keep black women off to the side for fear of the movement being, quote, hurt, because black women were a part of it. So we've seen this play out in every context, everywhere. And I think that's a powerful, uh, a powerful lesson. I don't know that there's an immediate answer given to us, but we've all talked in various ways about awareness is the first step and then working towards addressing that. I, I think that's, um, yes, Casey, we miss you. <laughs> it's not like he's dying or anything. He's just a little bit sick this, yeah. this morning. It feels like that, though. He's, he's not here. He's we not do here. miss him so much. Um, but I think you know that what what he's bringing is the conversation around uh, relationships between between women and how patriarchy sort of creates this wedge is really interesting because I think the thing that we haven't really said yet is all of the feminist approaches that we just went over were pretty much white feminist approaches. And it wasn't until a few decades after a lot of this work that had been done that there began to be critiques of those approaches by women who aren't white, like the womanist movement, for example, and um, Muhurista, 
movement of Latin America and there's like Asian American uh, critiques of uh, feminist critiques of white feminism. And I think it just speaks to what we were saying earlier. We need, we need all the interpretations of these texts and, and part of what is happening when you look at a text like Hagar and Sarah and, and interpret it as, oh, this is patriarchy inserting itself in between these two women. That gives us a whole different lens for looking at family relationships, for looking at justice. And then you add to that a womanist lens, a, um, Muharista a lens, a, it just keeps broadening it and broadening it and broadening it. And then the text actually gets to come alive instead of be stale and male, if I can make a little rhyme there. Um, and, and fixed in books that are on shelves, it gets to live again. So, yeah. Th- this just, it just, just hit me like a light bulb went off. Those of us who have read the Bible our whole lives and feel like we have a deep understanding of it might actually have the thinnest reading of the Bible yes. of all. Because we were we were oh, locked man. in for years with yes. the framework that was given to us that it took us decades to question. So in a lot of ways, our fresh reading is new. Yeah. So so for really me, okay, new. that that text, Hagar and Sarah, it's like. Uh, oh, here, here we go. It's a recapitulation of Adam and Eve. Abraham is allowing Sarah to collude with his unfaithfulness because he's not trusting in God to to give him his son. What a thin reading of that entire st- scenario. And if you bring other people into, you said make the text come alive. I think I'm like, there, there's a lot more weight there than it sounds. Like I, m- maybe for those of you who are reading the Bible, like listening to this, and you're like, man, I. <laughs> I have no more use for the Bible because of all the, the ways I've read it. That's probably true. But like, think of maybe your experience as a very thin slice of, of what reading the Bible actually is. And that your experience is maybe not even normative for, for the all of human history and all the culture that, that is in the, around the world. So maybe reading in community is a way to liberate your own self from the, the thin readings that you've read. I want that for myself, man. <laughs> That's crazy. Ah. And, and reading in community that disagrees with one another. You know, it's not not about being mean spirited or or derogatory, but disagreement is healthy. Because it's true that 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 reality was there in the text, whether I saw it or not. Patriarchy inserted itself between these two women. That that's a real thing. I just didn't see it because it didn't impact me in the same way it might impact someone else. And and chances are, women have seen that for right right ever. <laughs> But yes. never felt like they had the place, or even if a brave woman spoke up, they weren't listened to. It's not about feeling like you had the place. It's about not given a place and yeah, allowed a yeah. place. Sorry, you know? you're right. Well, I think you know. Speaking of all that, I think that that speaks to today's narratives of the the importance of representation in film and literature and movies and all of that kind of stuff, and recognizing how we frame a character, how we frame a personality that, that is being written about, especially within scripture. And again, that's my draw towards literary criticism within scripture is that we have these, these archetypes, these motifs that are happening through, um, especially the Hebrew scriptures. And, you know, one of the scriptures that stood out to me as kind of a beginning was Lot's daughters. 
And this idea is that you have, you have the motif of the trickster throughout all of the Hebrew scriptures, you know, and we tend to approach scripture very like from a dramatic motif. Like it's always, everything's always serious. And we forget that there's a way to interpret it as sometimes as a dark comedy uh, and like a trial of errors. And there's meant to be humor within that. So we have Abraham lying about his wife. We have Jacob going through this comedy of errors, being tricked and then trying to trick and all this kind of stuff. And then we have Lot's daughters, which can be interpreted in a way where it's under that same trickster, dark comedy motif, but we've always, oh, that's incest. That's bad. And I mean, if you look at the story arc of how they were treated, first of all, they were offered up as <laughs> a sacrifice just before right. this. And then you come into this place and they're just doing what every other male patriarch has done, trying to keep their family alive by unprecedented means. And the interpreter, the Christian church for centuries, has put that in a place of, oh, well, this is bad. But, you know, Jacob, well, silly Jacob, you know, he's such a trickster. And, you know, and, and I think that we've seen that in our own narratives, right? Like you've had the Ferris Bueller type in film in the eighties where it was always a male and people would reject, well, you can't, you can't reboot Ferris Bueller and have a female. But then we've seen traditional male types in film be subverted over the last decade, especially, which has been nice to see them, you know, things like Bridesmaid to be the, the kind of crass lead of, a of a raunchy comedy as a female, as opposed to something that was traditionally done. And I think that those little moments, uh, I think it's a borderline miracle given the context and whose voice is being written in some of these Hebrew texts that we do have these subvert, subverted yes. archetypes and women in those characters. But we have to look at it that way because I think, I think even now, maybe some listeners are thinking, wait a minute, lots daughters and that whole scene as, as maybe funny, like as maybe like in the same vein as, as a Jacob is, um, it's hard because we've been given these archetypes to to attach onto for so long. Well, I think you can take Lot's daughters even a step further if our listeners are okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> We're okay with it, so let's. <laughs> I think that's the cold that, open. That, 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 that setup is a little. I'm nervous well, but, now. <laughs> but I mean, what you said is so right on, Jeff. They were just offered up, yeah. and the text said they hadn't ever been with men before, or something like that. And um, you don't do anything to these men in my house, but I have these daughters that have never been touched by a man before. Do with them what you will. All right. Where's the consent in that? Then where was the consent in what happened to their father? Right. The, 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 the trickster or revenge mm -hmm. is another possibility. Right. right. Exactly. And they because lost their mother just because she was longing for the place she came from. I mean, there's multiple levels of, of oppression in that, that they're experiencing. But there's right. continuity in the narrative, like, like, like Bonnie was saying, is that, you know, th their consent was violated and then it ends with another violation of consent. Like, that's the beauty of these stories is that we can look at them and we get so caught up in, you know, all the other stuff. But these, these are, these are narrative. These are, you know, I, I would love to see some of these, uh, some of these Hebrew scripture stories reinterpreted through the lens of a dark comedy or like just to give us like a visual representation of, Oh wait, this is something else. My, my daughters watch the show called brainchild on Netflix. And one of them is about how, uh, you know, things change 
one of the episodes is about emotions and how certain things can manipulate and change our emotions. And they open with this little scene of a man coming in to, you know, pledge his love to a woman. And they start off with really upbeat music and they, they edit it in such a way where, Oh, this is like romantic comedy, but then they take the same clip and they add horror music to it. And it becomes this like creepy stalker kind of thing. And I think part of the reason when we approach scripture is that the music we've been given when we look at scripture has been serious. This is the only way to do it. These are the stories that we've told and we haven't been given other options or interpretations. Like right now, uh, little women is out in the theaters and how many times has that movie been reimagined and re-edited? And the reason is because the story can be done because we can bring new context to it. And we don't do that enough with scripture. And, and let's bring a, a lot of clarity and honesty to the fact that we do not know how these texts were used. We have ideas that certain texts were sung in the temple, some Psalms, some certain things. And there's really good, like, I mean, there's not all kinds of possibilities. There's like probably a limited amount of possibilities of how they were used, but we don't really know. We don't have access to history books from that time period that tell us what the music score was for Which all is the reading better because then we right. have, we have room to, to put our yeah. own to it. Mm -hmm. But even if we did, we would need to read them differently today anyway. Yes. And so because we're different. Right. And um, there's continuity in these texts, and that's what makes them, like, amazing, that we actually do have voices from this ancient world of humans that is carried forward to us today. Um, but, yeah, we we don't know. And even if we did, I'm not sure <laughs> it it may not it may not relate to us today anyway. No, I, I, you're absolutely right, Bonnie. But I think there's power in acknowledging our ignorance. Because that undermines a sense of superiority and absolute rightness. So, where and wherever and whenever that's possible, acknowledging ignorance is, I think, critical. Yeah, I had, that's true. I, I had a friend be like, she, you know, she, she spent her whole life like reading the Bible, and her family has been reading the Bible, and she was like, "We do so much serious, weird stuff with it, like skipping over that ignorance piece. We, we like." We shape our world in deeply profound ways and ourselves without giving any recognition to the mystery or the, the, the gap between the, 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 the what the Bible is and what our experience of it is. Um, so any other biblical pieces that, that stand out? I was just thinking something that Alan said, I think is worth taking a look at again about how like our reading of the Bible is so limited and so thinly sliced. Those of us who, who were raised in a, a fundamentalist conservative Christian tradition, our reading of the Bible and our reading of the world are almost like merged. And I think that is really important. And so uh, by applying different lenses to reading the Bible, it's an invitation, not just an invitation, but it opens up different lenses in the way that we read the world, the way that we read our own lives. Uh, and that is hard work. It's really hard work. So I just wanted to throw that out there. And, and get, who gets to determine where the location of authority is in interpretations. Like I'm thinking about that lot. So in my understanding of that story, 
there's an Israelite writer writing about a different people group that they're actually in opposition to that descend from those daughters. And it's like, it's like an epithet. It's a way of, of, uh, characterizing a different people group. They're, they're descent from incest. They're, they're, a, they're different than us and they're, they have murky beginnings. And like, that could be one level of political, like intrigue inside of the writing of that text. But who's to say that's the authoritative piece of interpretation? Do you get what I'm saying? Like there's, there's different places. Like who's to say that's the only way the text should ever be used. It should be read by everyone that, oh yeah, that's a bad people group because this is what the author's intention was. Even if that's the main intention that the author had. And I think that's probably not true, Jeff, because your, your reading is like really getting into my mind now. <laughs> of like well, the, the, there's the a, there's a history that we have of biblical interpretation where a little line is added like that to a pre-existing story yeah. to justify where. So, I mean, it almost supports what we're talking about is that we can have these narratives and apply a context to it. Obviously, hopefully not one that, you know, is xenophobic and nationalistic like that one. But I think that th- there, there's plenty of instances where I think we can have a valid interpretation by you know just crossing out that line at the end because th- there's a lot of addendums within narratives. Yeah, it's important to realize. I, I think people can go back to previous episodes on the nature of the Bible, like uh, holy literature, I think was one or something like that. W-H-O-L-L-Y, I think. And like – Maybe we should revisit the, the the nature of biblical texts as a podcast again, um, since we've evolved and changed over the years. But 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 it is helpful to know that the Bible itself was a communal transmission and process. There's like the author, there's the history behind that, there's the redactor, there's like different sources being put together and people adding stuff on. So even the nature of itself is like that. But what I, I think uh, where the authority thing that I'm talking about is like who gets to determine how a text gets used. It's not even just the author. It's not even the author's intention that gets to determine what the meaning of that text is for our lives. I think that is a communal process. And that gets into reader response criticism. But it's funny when you think about that that way. If you just sit with the fact that that might be true, it might be true that the authority is not an authorial intent, that the authority is in the community who is reading it to use it and appropriate it in ways that they find meaningful. We have a bunch historically a bunch of white men in our country telling everyone else how to use the bible like they're they're the ones with the the authority of this is the only appropriate way to use the bible and i think we're getting away from that and recovering the the idea of reading it in community I think that that's true all around, though. I think why does there have to be authority? I think there's white males dictating Bible narrative. I mean, go on Twitter and like follow film Twitter and how the white males are trying to dominate the Star Wars conversation. Like there's all these fictional narratives that we have in our society that are being dominated. Like this is the way it's supposed to be. This is how it's going to do. And I think to say to even like have to look to any authority for these is maybe part of the problem is because when we're looking for an authority, we're looking for a right interpretation. Like setting up a binary of competing different interpretations is the wrong thing to do in the first place. I think like so. Maybe it's supposed to be open. Yeah. R- Rajiv, you asked us if there were any other texts that we've turned feminist lenses to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I actually thought pretty hard about this because you invited us to think about it ahead of time. And I was like, man, what? There's so many things that could be chosen that I think I've I've encountered, and I wanted to talk about the Song of Songs, but I was like, this feels like actually risky for me 
being invited into a conversation about feminist readings of the Bible and I choose the Song of Songs out of everything is just feels like I'm not self-reflective or of course I go there or something like that. I don't know how to explain it, but I, I, in my Hebrew class, I bought, um, an interpretation of the song, uh, a translation of the Song of Songs by Marsha Falk. And it's a really beautiful book. One thing that she said at the beginning kind of triggered something for me. And I started to research it a little bit in seminary. She was about ready to interpret this book because she's a Hebrew scholar. And she had a professor tell her to make sure that she separates out, separates out herself as a feminist from herself as a translator. She said, uh, here we go. I recall one professor who cautioned me early on to separate myself as a feminist from myself as a translator. I replied that I was grateful not to have to do any such violence to myself since the song of songs was not the sexist text. He apparently took it to be. And there are people including Weems, the, the the professor that was mentioned before, who believe that there are actually genuine voices of women in the Song of Songs historically, that they were songs written by women, and there's lots of evidence for why that that's probably the case. But in any case, there is um, a woman's voice dominates that book more than any other like voice in the text, because there are other characters. But there's so many themes of like, uh, ple- like a woman experiencing and desiring pleasure for its own sake, <laughs> like is in the book, which is just, I mean, that's progressive for 1800s and 1900s America. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's still progressive for some places in America right now. But, oh, wow. A woman's pleasure could just be sacred on its own. Um, is something that like the Western mind had to warm up to for a couple thousand years. But there's this, there's this book that, that has a celebration of a woman's passion and, her own experience and it's spoken from like the first person. And interestingly enough, uh, God is not mentioned anywhere in the text and marriage. Marriage is not even, in, is, is, is not a central focus, focal point at all of her experience of love. And, um, reflecting on it and how I've treated the book and how I think of it now after learning from these people who have taught me like Marsha Falk and, uh, Renita Weems is, uh, I used to be told that it was an allegory for the church, church's relationship with Christ. Let's get away from a woman's experience of pleasure because that's scary. <laughs> let's let's if it's going to be in the Bible, it has to be about something else, right? It can't be about that. It has to be about the church. It has to be about patriarchy. Patriarchy. Yeah, it has to be Jesus's relationship with the bride. That's got to be it. And this is the church's longing for Jesus. Um, and then on the other side, I see it used now in some of the evangelical contexts I came from like Mark Driscoll and others still centering the masculine sexual expression, or at least their, their version of the masculine sexual expression. It's used in these like small groups as a way of being like, Hey, sex is not super taboo, you know, or like, this is great. Like it's still ignoring all of the dynamics that, that feminist critique would bring. And it's still centering the male experience. And it's ironic that we use it that way, but I guess it's not ironic because patriarchy seeks to control control the narrative. I don't know if you have thoughts about that, but that's the first thing that came to my mind. No, that's, that's really great, Alan. That That's really, really good. I appreciate that a lot. You know, I'm just going to jump into to mine here. In thinking about this, I, I really was hoping to share something that was in the course of my graduate school study when I was more evolved and, you know, yada, yada. 
Uh, and, and what I kept coming back to was, was something that hit me early on while I was still very much in the church of my upbringing that uh, allowed me to be a feminist because Jesus was a feminist. And by that, there's two, two examples that I picked up. And again, this is from a way back in, in, in my development. Jesus and his mom, they're at the wedding feast. And Jesus is, he's partying with his friends. And his mom's like, dude, you got to make some more wine. And he's like, uh, no. And she's like, Jesus. And he makes the wine. <laughs> you know, he like changes course. And it's such a simple thing. But I was like, you know, this is, this is, you know, again, in my mind, this is God. Having God's mind, God's course of action changed by his mother, by a woman. And then Another example that's that's kind of uh, somewhat related is the Syrophoenician woman who's talking about the crumbs and the dogs. And she's like, don't even the dogs get the crumbs off the master's table. And I imagine Jesus sort of being really taken aback. He's getting called out for his racism and his sexism. And but sort of in again, in that early stage, credit to Jesus, he changes his mind. You know, he has his mind changed. And the two crystal clear examples of that in, in Jesus's life and teachings are at the hands and at the feet of women who were teaching him to be different. So for me, those those things, examples have kind of stuck with me in almost the same way as they first hit me, where women have a lot to say. Women can see things in many contexts that men, heterosexual men in particular, can't always see. And you need to listen and act. It's it's great that we have like all of these examples of how we can apply a feminist lens towards the Bible and texts in the Bible. But I think ultimately, uh, it's important to apply that lens to the entirety of the Bible. You know, it's it's easy to find like certain texts where this lens like fits well, and we get excited about how we can you know, find this liberative message for, for uh, women in this particular text. But the method of using feminist, the feminist lens is meant to be applied from Genesis to Revelation and all of those texts in between, and to see like what insights can we gain from, from using it. Yeah. And I, I think the for for let me just talk to the I guess the men that are listening. Um, if you're trying to do this work and approach the Bible and your faith from a feminist perspective and it feels like you don't know what you're doing or how to do it or what do it anyway. And, you know, something really simple is if you have women in your life that you trust and you run into a roadblock, just ask, you know, and and listen. And whatever insights you gain, don't teach them. <laughs> like, like, don't, right. don't, like, don't be a don't, receiver. Right? Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't, like, put them, put yourself in a place of authority now that you have this little bit of knowledge. Because I, I know that's our tendency <laughs> as bro mergence. So just, just shut up, listen, like, hold it, and be like, oh, this is good, and uh, know that you sh- you can and should be challenged on that, and it should be an evolving thing. So. Um, Let's just say we have a long ways to go before the tail, <laughs> the scales are tipped, <laughs> right? In the teaching the Bible category, exactly, long, long way, exactly. 
Well, this was a good conversation. Uh, those of you that are listening, let us know what you think. You can add your voice to this particular conversation by commenting at the show notes at irenacast.com slash 163. Also in the show notes, you'll find relevant links and a complete list of all their ways to like, follow, and contact the show. That's irenacast.com slash 163. And if you'd like to submit a possible suggestion for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at irenacast.com. Uh, on the other side of the music, we are going to be playing a brand new segment brought to us by the one and only Rajiv called I Would But... All right, well, we are back, and we are going to be playing a brand new segment, I Would But. This is the ultimate practice in mansplaining. Uh, <laughs> each of us are going to submit uh, something that we would like to do, accomplish, be, and all the other hosts will say, we'll, we'll add the but. But – Like why we can't – Why you can't do it. This is why, <laughs> this is why this you can't. This feels like a Rajiv thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna give you some perspective. <laughs> so this is this is a wonderful uh, subversion of what we've been talking about, and we're gonna have some fun. We're gonna we're gonna turn this into a dark comedy, and we are going to be cruel out Crushing of love <laughs> or encouraging. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, do, Rushi, this this is kind yeah. of the premise, right? I want to make that, sure that's, I... that's totally it. All right, and well, I'm then... hoping you all share things you really desperately want to do. That that I think it's only fair that you are the first to offer up yourself to the altar of mansplaining. All right, uh, (laughs) right. and and this is actually this is actually something I would love to do. Uh, I would love to learn to fly a helicopter, but then you would take your helicoptering over other people's lives to a new level. (laughs) (laughs) Is that too mean? (laughs) That's good. That's good. That's funny. My kids will agree. Uh. But you would have to look down, and that's really scary. I am afraid of heights. Uh, oh, you are. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, I I was gonna say, but then you'd have to have someone invent a helicopter booster seat. Uh. Oh, dang. <laughs> We're not doing that, oh, are we? Dang. That's good. I don't know though. if I want to put myself going, up on going the, for the vertically challenged this. jokes. I don't know about this. It just fit with this freight of heights, like you just kind of. Jeez, Jeff. Good lord. No, that's good. That's good. This is too intense for my taste. Hey, did you look out the window when you were flying to uh, Scotland? Yeah, I mean, you know, good airplanes aren't a problem. Yeah. Part of it is I like to go places like Bonnie and I like to go places. And if I had a helicopter, we could go places like mm. quick, you know, yep. we could go on these adventures, see something brand new. Um, <laughs> yeah. And for those of you listening, in case you haven't inferred, they just recently went to Scotland and uh, had a wonderful time. Yeah, that was amazing. <laughs> Can I go next? <laughs> go yeah. for it. Yes. Uh, I'd, I'd go on an archaeological dig, but... <laughs> You're too busy digging yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but you That's get true. You get very little digging done because everything you found, you'd have to explain for hours oh. on why it's important. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. I do get excited about everything. It's true. I'd stop and marvel for like an hour uncovering a bell. This is amazing. You don't but- even understand why. 
Okay, but the United States is starting wars with all the countries that archaeological <laughs> digs could actually happen in, and so it wouldn't be safe. Oh my god! Wow, dude. Okay, can I just say, was, talk Kibani, about bringing feminist critique home? <laughs> it's political. It. <laughs> also, can, can we just say having the president threaten to bomb cultural sites is the same thing that ISIS threatened and did? Like that's the same. That's a terroristic. Oh He's my no God. different. Good lord. Well, hey, I like this game already. Those are three good <laughs> reasons for me to just stay home and <laughs> dig, dig yourself. Myself. Yeah, Absolutely. Dig, yourself. <laughs> <laughs> dig in your backyard. You might find something. Who's uh? Jeff, I, I Jeff and Bonnie have to go. Yeah, who who's your who's next? Whose dream can we squash? You could squash mine, but it's it's such a good dream. Okay, I would be a sheep farmer. But you don't know shit about sheep. <laughs> but my understanding of scripture is only males can be uh shepherds. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. But but you'd be too compassionate for the game and wouldn't be able to make money because you wouldn't be breeding sheep to have more wool than they can physically sustain. So you'd go belly up, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> you'd have all because these of your compassion. Dread, dreadlock sheep. <laughs> you know, those sheep have like way too much wool and they're like, like, you wouldn't do that. So you wouldn't be able to keep it afloat. Okay, but I... I I could still do it. <laughs> None of those excuses are good enough. Learn by doing. Especially the one about only men can be sheep farmers. That just makes me want to do it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> also, it feels a little weird having three men telling a woman what she can't do on the episode. We <laughs> this is so bad. About this is so bad. Let's just critiques. say it's not the first time. Oh, oh that's true. That's uh -oh. probably true. <laughs> oh. This is educational for me. Thank wow. You. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> all right, Jeff. Let's hear it. Um, I <laughs> he's re he's afraid. He's like, he's like, he's like, <laughs> like I, I can't say my my real. I, I can take it. I honestly, design. I am still trying to think of one that. Uh, I don't know if I should throw a softball out there or if I, uh, or should be genuine about something I want to do. Hmm. I get. Was everyone else genuine? Should I? Yeah, should I follow yeah. I, mine was genuine. genuine. Okay. All right. <laughs> all right. Here's here's. <laughs> I would be a filmmaker, but but you're too good of a critic. Hmm. I think like you, you see so much, and you'd probably see so much in your own film. You'd be so hyper aware of everything that's happening. That's fair. I'd be a horrible self critic and never put anything out. <laughs> that's what I mean. Like, yeah. But it would take so much of you to do it and you have other things that you want to do too you wouldn't have time for a renicast is what she's saying <laughs> these are super nice and understanding rajiv come on y you know but, but the grind of life has you in its clutches oh that those are all like like nice and like constructive <laughs> and i feel bad because mine were all pretty pretty mean okay, and biting Jeff. Because no theater deserves your art. 
That's super nice, too. I body shamed (laughs) Rajiv. I was sexist towards Bonnie. (laughs) I was belittling of Alan. And now everyone's like all nice and supportive. Um, Like for the past couple episodes, there's always been one odd person out, you know, that feels the heat of this segment. I guess so. When we were stuff to each other. Then then I'm changing it. I would be a ballerina, but. (laughs) (laughs) But you can't dance, Jeff. (laughs) That make you feel better. Very true. (laughs) You, you get dizzy just turning around. <laughs> you haven't mastered the art of tiptoeing in any area of your life. <laughs> there we go. That's, That's it's getting there. Is that, it's getting there. Is that a mean joke? There you go. No, I, mean, I, I don't like the mean stuff, you guys. I can't do it. <laughs> I right. think we want you to be a filmmaker, Jeff. I think that's what's hard. I think that's what we were okay with like, with Rajiv not right, you know, learning how to be a helicopter pilot. Like we could live with that. Probably what, me. What's wrong with that? If I win the lottery, that's the first thing I'm doing. Because then you would take us up, and we wouldn't want to go with you because it'd right. be scary. And I'd be constantly looking up. Yeah, uh, Jeff. I, like I would love to see you make a movie. I think that's part of why I was like, uh, what do I say? Well, you guys were the ones that told me to be genuine about it, so they're that's right. Yeah, oh, um, I guess genuine-ish is what we should have said. Genuine-ish, <laughs> genuine-ish. Well, you're going to make a film, and we're going to look back and take credit for inspiring you <laughs> with our kindness. <laughs> Your face for just a we, flash of a second, like how dare you? <laughs> we'd all like to be in the credits, Jeff. That's right. That's, of course, we could do voiceovers because I'm sure it'll be like a superhero. You'd be extra. Thing. You can pilot the the extras. You can oh, pilot the I helicopter. Can the helicopter. There you go. And Bonnie gets to be the sheep <laughs> I can, farmer. I could be the sheep farmer. <laughs> and I'm the one working in an archaeological dig. See, Yay. like it, there's, there, there's your there's, plot. There, totally, there's a be plot. the weirdest movie ever. I'm down. Let's do it. <laughs> hey, you know how they did the Michael Scott. Uh, what what is that? Agent Michael Scarn. Yeah. We did an actual movie of it. We should do an Irene Cast movie where Bonnie the Sheep Farmer, Alan the Archaeological Dig. We should make it. The fun and the narrative would how do you get a helicopter pilot, a filmmaker, a shepherd, and an archaeologist all in the same adventure together? Totally Easy. could do that. Okay, here Every it is. Indiana Jones movie the, ever. The sheep farm is on a remote <laughs> Scottish island that can only be accessed by helicopter. On less than stormy days. And there's so much archaeology in and Scotland. Alan discovers a manuscript that has a map that says there's this major archaeological find on this this island. And then wins a grant to make a film of the whole process. And everybody's got to get back and forth. I think it should open up with... with and Bonnie, then like, aliens. In the- <laughs> <laughs> no, Loch Ness. That's Yay. who discovered Loch, Loch Ness. Ness. There you go. Who Yay. is an alien. The Loch Ness monster. Right. Sounds like a Doctor Who episode. I'm I'm down. Let's let's let's, let's do it. <laughs> everyone's everyone's was just a polite little laugh. Doctor Who was oh. just nerd talking about. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, I don't that, know how you're going to edit this, Jeff. But <laughs> I know. Good luck. <laughs> it, it, it's what I do. Uh, that'll do it for us this week. If you enjoy Irenacast and would like to support the show, please consider donating to our PayPal link at irenacast.com slash PayPal. Uh, we're committed to keeping the show for free for listeners, but there are costs involved and your financial support always helps. That's irenacast.com slash PayPal. Uh, and Irenacast is also a nonprofit organization, so your donations are tax deductible. For more information on that and supporting the show, you can go to irenacast.com slash support. Uh, and of course, you can always support the show by simply making sure you've subscribed on whatever platform you're listening to. And if it allows it, leave a rating and or review. So for this week, I'm Jeff. I am Alan. I'm Bonnie. And this is Rajiv. Thanks for joining the conversation. 